Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. So as we come to First Chronicles chapter 21, we come to this story of David, King David, where he took the census, and then now all of a sudden the text just takes us forward to the latter part of his life, and a, a failure, really, truly. Uh, he was fallen in this chapter, but not forsaken. As we look at the text tonight, we're going to talk about that, fallen, but not forsaken, because all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So we are all fallen, but through Christ Jesus, we're not forsaken. And tonight we're going to be reminded of that as we look at this chapter. So we pick it up in verse 1, where it immediately tells us what's going on. Verse 1 of chapter 21, we read this. Now Satan stood up against Israel, the nation, and he moved David to number Israel. Take a census. So David said to Joab, his commander, and the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know that number, that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my lord the king, are there not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing? Why should he be the cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Now, 2 Samuel tells us this was a 10-month journey. Verse 5. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count the Levites, the tribe of Levi, and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. So this request of David, it was unsettling to Joab, his right-hand man. You know, Joab's that mystery guy we've talked about quite a bit in Samuel and Chronicles. But time and time again, Joab's like rock solid on like calling it the way it is, like David, bad, bad idea. Because he was close to David, and he tried to stop David. And so even a couple weeks ago, someone asked me here in the sanctuary, what was so bad about David taking the census and as we look at the passage, we realize pride. And of all the things that are bad in the human experience, pride is really bad. Because we're told that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. We're told that Satan, who's in this chapter, before he fell and was cast out of heaven, he was really the created beauty and jewel of heaven, this super being of great beauty. And the prophets tell us of his fall in the Old Testament and that we see he went from beauty to ugliness, you know, and he, and he was cast out, and we had the fall. And so here he is. He, he comes into us. He's introduced us in the Genesis chapter 3 in the garden out of nowhere. So the fall had happened outside this dimension prior to that. And he's called the tempter. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the wicked one, the god of this age, little G. There's a lot of names for Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the adversary. I don't think we really have any idea truly how evil and powerful 
Satan is. But we are told he's taken the whole world captive to do his will before we come to Christ. Our head of the race, Adam, forfeited our dominion over this planet, promised in Genesis 1 and 2, in its fullest sense, when they sinned and submitted to Satan in the garden, Adam and Eve. So death entered, they sinned, death entered, and thus death came to all. And there in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, God promised that he would provide redemption for the fallen humanity, there 3.15, that he would provide a redeemer to redeem humanity from the effects of sin and death caused by their being tempted and submitting to Satan there in the garden. We haven't seen his name, like Satan's name doesn't pop up a lot in the Old Testament. And here in Chronicles, we're just sailing along like a road trip and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, Satan, like did not, did not want to see that, did not want to just, you know, I'm fine going through any book of the Bible without seeing the devil or Satan or Lucifer, or any of those names for him. And yet it is a great reality that he's against us in trying to destroy our walks with the Lord, trying to destroy our marriages, trying to destroy our children, young or adult, our grandchildren, our society, our culture, the definition of right and wrong. He's, that's who he is. So here in this story, he is the tempter and he tempts David and David gives him the temptation. David's temptation is pride. Now, God did give census in the past where he'd say, take a census but when God says take a census, you take a census. And, you know, we talk about numbers are good to know. You want to know the numbers, especially with your personal finances and stuff like that. But I found in 35 years of ministry, when you try and number the work of the Lord, you're headed for trouble. I think church memberships, official church memberships and things like that, it can just cause trouble and mischief sometimes. It can lead to pride. I'm not opposed to church memberships as a whole because there are many wonderful pastors who have official church memberships. But men love and women love to find strength in power. And people are power and finances are power. And those are two great powers that can really trip us up and stumble us and make us have confidence in the Lord. If you have a lot of people, then you can have confidence in a lot of people, military might. If you have a lot of money, you can have confidence in a lot of money, economic might. And both can completely let you down in the human experience. David himself said, Son, men trust in chariots, but we will trust in the Lord our God. And it would seem in this story that his trust in his older age, as he had all that wealth and all that power and defeated all of his enemies, and he's got a trophy room second to none of all the, you know, the crowns they put on his head from people he conquered and all this stuff. He's got a vault full of treasuries, that he, the booty that he took from everywhere when he conquered everybody that's set aside for Solomon to build the temple in a later generation. And man, he could just be like, wow, I'm... I'm a bad dude, man. Like, he could have become a grumpy old man. He might have become a grumpy old man. We don't really know. But David is too much of a man for God's heart to become a grumpy old man. And God's not going to let it happen. So David took this census, and it was a cause of trouble. Now, we're told in 2 Samuel that God allowed him to do it. And that God actually was looking for a reason to judge Israel. But see, that's not for us. The things that reveal belong to us and to our children. The secret things belong to the Lord. And whatever God was doing where he was allowing David uh, to give in to that temptation, that's between David and the Lord and God and 70,000 people who died in this plague. And we're told in James, let no one ever say they're tempted by God. No one's tempted by God. We're all tempted when we're drawn away by our own lust and sinful nature. And we know that sinful nature shows up in three categories. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And with David... 
in 2 Samuel, we saw in his early sin with Bathsheba, he saw this beautiful woman bathing, and it was Buddy's wife, lust of the eyes, brought her in to him, had intimacy with her, lust of the flesh, you know, and God's like, dude, you could have anybody, but not your buddy's wife, you know, and uh, that was it, and he was confronted, and the rest is history, and all the turmoil and trouble he had for his adult kids for, until the end of his life, he had challenges from that consequence, but here, it's pride, and it's interesting, I find as I get older, that when you're younger, you are prone to the lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh, but when you get older, you are prone toward pride, you see that. You can see that with elderly people. They get super prideful as they lose freedoms. They get defensive. And they want, and like, no one tells me I can't drive anymore. No one says I can't do this because it's hard to lose those freedoms. But we all know you start in diapers. And if you live long enough, you will end in diapers. If you don't think so, go to CVS and see all the diapers on the shelf for adults. And it's, yeah, it's the real deal. So we got a battle of all three elements of sin when we're younger, and we've got to battle all three elements of sin when we're older. And I don't think there's a great distinction, but if we get to heaven and we find out that God has more mercy on the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, I will not be surprised. Because in the Gospels, time and time again, Jesus has forgiven people like the adulterous women and harlots and all these people. He's shown great mercy and empathy, but those prideful Pharisees and Sadducees found no room for grace, nor did they seek it. And Lucifer's sin wasn't the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Lucifer's sin was pride. I will be God. And you know, as little human beings step toward eternity and have built up wealth, sometimes they feel like they're God. And the last thing they can control is their wealth and tell people they're in the will, not in the will, control this, control that, and do stuff like that. I remember it was hard to get my dad to not drive anymore. He was 84. I begged him, please don't drive anymore. Let us just do this and help you out with this. My dad was very cooperative. He said, well, Joe, there was a day when, my, when I had to tell my dad he couldn't drive anymore. And I said, how did you know he couldn't drive anymore? He goes, he was coming down the wrong side of the road with his windshield wipers on on a sunny day in Florida. And even in Florida, that's unusual. That's not acceptable in even a sleepy town like, you know, Port Orange. So our context, the sin was pride. The devil's a tempter. David gave the temptation. But really, it's about failure and renewal. It's about fallen but not forsaken. As we come to verse 7, we read on. And God was displeased with this thing, and therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I've done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. This is pretty awesome, right? Like, as soon as, you know, God was displeased, and so David's confronted with it. And let us all look at this, ladies and gentlemen, body of Christ, WG. I have sinned greatly. I have sinned greatly. And I have done very foolishly. Those of you that have raised kids that are adults now, we know it can be very hard getting your kids to admit to doing anything wrong or admit that they were foolish. And if we're honest with ourselves, the person we see in the mirror, we have a hard time admitting that we were wrong or that we were foolish. But sin and folly, they go together. In fact, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about those two being uh, yoked together, sin and folly. As we think about fallen, because David fell, he fell into sin 
pride of life. And it's a big one. Instead of trusting the Lord, he trusted in chariots. And he, something was happening there in independent living or assisted living or wherever it was David was because this is the latter part of his life. And, you know, just something like the, the adult kids couldn't reason with him. Joab, his best friend, couldn't reason with him who managed the estate and the trust. You just couldn't reason with him. But give David credit because the man with a heart for God, as he showed that corrective element in his life and willing to receive reproof when he was younger, he received it when he was older. Because when he's confronted with sin, with Bathsheba, when he's confronted with it, he said, I've sinned. And he didn't blame Bathsheba for taking a bath half naked on the rooftop next to the palace. He didn't blame, you know, Joab or anyone else. The king next door in Moab. He said, I've sinned, and he accepted his punishment. In fact, we read of this in Psalm 51. And it gives us good insight to where David's at here, because in this text, we're told he accepts full responsibility. He doesn't say, I've sinned, but, you know, the Ammonites were getting bigger armies, and I need to do a census. He didn't say, I've sinned, but, you know, all my wives are driving me crazy. I have sinned, you know, but the dog wouldn't stop howling across the hill over there in the Kidron Valley. And, like, he didn't come up with a bunch of excuses. He just said, I have sinned, I have greatly sinned, and I have been foolish. I have been foolish. That's, I mean, for a guy that controls millions of dollars and has a lot of power and has won a lot more than he's lost and is in the Hall of Fame of Greatness... It takes a lot. It shows something special about his heart with the Lord, even in his folly, to confess that sin and own it. And we've been saying this a lot lately. One of the immediate marks of maturity, and I say this really for the young people as well as older people here tonight, the moment you accept responsibility for who you see in the mirror is the moment you go forward in life. The moment you don't, you don't have excuses no more excuses. The moment, you know, my wife Jennifer, it was about 10 years ago, and maybe you know this, about 10 years ago, one time I said I was sorry, but. Uh, Jennifer, I'm sorry, but the dog. Jennifer, I'm sorry, but the construction crew down there, like, you know, and she just said to me, you know what, why don't you just say I'm sorry instead of I'm sorry, but. I'm like, oh, that's not that hard to do. Until I became cognizant of it. And then I realized every time I said I was sorry, I said I'm sorry, but. Jennifer's like, did you do that? I'm sorry, but, ah, ah. you know, like it's autopilot, like a rut. You just fall into a rut. It's easy to just go right into the rut because it's just the rut, right? And I'm sorry, but, and it, it took discipline in my mind, seriously, for years to just learn to say I'm sorry, period, not but, and the continuation with adjectives and adverbs to explain away my wrongdoing. I got a ticket a, a while ago, and I was like, ah, I'm good with the cops. I love the blue. I pray for the blue. I go to blue commissionings, and I, you know, like, I'm all about the blue. I always cheer for the blue when it's a blue against the criminals. You know, like, I, I got blue. I got good blue juju. <laughs> this guy's going to let me off the hook for this. It's just a stupid thing. And he came up and he gave me the ticket. <laughs> and I thought of all the problems in our community. All the criminals in Orange County. And I thought, you know, I pay, I pay your salary. But I thought all these thoughts that you and I think, because you think it too. And people drive by, I'm like, don't look at me. I'm the guy that gets off the hook for the ticket because I support the blue. You just keep driving. Nothing to see here. Just keep going. And he gave me the ticket. I said, you know, well, it's nothing I don't deserve. 
That's what I said. I go, there's nothing I don't deserve. And thank you for your service. Because I always thank cops for their service. I see in Starbucks, hey, thank you for your service. So, hey, officer, hey, thank you for your service. I'm like, thank you for your service. Yeah. Ah. For the next three hours, and I went to the dentist next. How's that for a one-two punch, right? So I met the dentist. I was going like, you know, there are so many criminals in Huntington Beach. Don't go there. Don't think that. The, the, he's doing his job. You do your job. And I worked through it. And by noon, I'm like, you know what? No matter what, this is on me. The fee, driving, school, it's all on me. That's on me. That's not him. He's doing his job. I show up in the pulpit to do mine. That's it. There's nothing more to say. Yeah. I, it's not something I didn't deserve. It's a fancy way of saying, like, I'm guilty. That's a, you know, it wasn't pleasant, but at least I was honest with myself. Uh, ah, you know. Well, I still going to back to blue, you know. And that's, it's, you know, it's like, it's not really about me, but, like, I think that's in all of us. Like, Jennifer's like, quit saying I'm sorry, but. And when the guy gives you the ticket, it's like, you, you did it. Like, why are you even, like, just drive away and go to the dentist? And he said, have a nice time with the dentist, too. That even meant, oh, have a nice time with the dentist. Hey, thank you for your service. You know, it was just, what are you going to do? It was a Monday. I mean, like, come on, man. Like, just like, oh, gosh, don't buy a lottery ticket today, man. It's, yeah. It is one of those things. But confession is a good thing. And in Psalm 51, when David was confronted the first time, and he said, I've sinned, this is what he said in his prayer with the Lord. In Psalm 51, verse 3, he said, I have acknowledged my transgressions, and my sin is always before you. Body of Christ, yes, it is. And he said in verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, in that ticket situation, I thought, you know, this is the Lord. Because, you know, I've built up so much, you know, cause and effect of goodness toward law enforcement. Only the Lord would do this. This is the Lord. This a man or a woman can receive nothing from the Lord. It's between me and the Lord. Like, this is the Lord. Like, hey, seriously, Blue, you know, thank you for your service. Because, and that's how it works. When we accept responsibility for our sins and don't say, yes, but, I've sinned, but, or, ah, oh, man, but, you know, this, that... We're in such a good place to grow and go forward in the human experience, let alone being transformed for glory for the eternal experience. Who do you think runs eternity with King Jesus? People who walk in humility, who confess and learn from their sins in the human experience. That's who. Who does not run things in eternity? People who are obstinate, hard-hearted, stubborn, prideful, and unrepentant. That's who. So this is all to our own good. When Jesus came into the world and is introduced to us in the Gospel of Mark, the first thing he says is repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. We need to repent. And repentance starts with acknowledging the wrong and confessing it before the Lord. Because as that happens, we're set up for good things. He would go on to say in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So when we get that confession, it really is to our own self-interest because in the end, God cleanses us and he restores to us things that were lost. When we simply agree with the Lord that we have fallen. You know, everyone falls, but a righteous man will get up seven times, we're told in Proverbs. Remember what the Lord spoke to me when I finally surrendered to go into ministry in 
uh, November of 1987, failure is inevitable, growth is optional. So you're going to fail. The only question is, are you going to learn from failure and grow and go forward? And that's why I'm really glad I'm still alive at 62, because I got a lot of growing and a lot of going to get to before I step into eternity, if the time has permitted me. And so do you. First John 1 John 1.9, as the Apostle John was near the end of his life, he wrote that important phrase, if we, say that we, if we say that we don't sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. So we do have that sinful nature and we don't set out to do wrong, but it happens. We fall. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. See, we need the cleansing to go forward. Like a, a wound, like a physical wound, you have to cleanse a physical wound for it to heal properly. So we need to confess it and then we need to be cleansed from it so we can go forward. So confession is critical. And I don't know in your life where you're at with the Lord, but if there are things that he's pressing on your heart that you, he's saying, just confess this so we can go forward, it's going to be good for you and it's going to be good for the people you love and care about and who care about you. So as we think about fallen but not forsaken, we see how critical it is for confession as we see in David in verses 7 and 8. And just, oh, it's hard to say I've done foolishly, but... I have, and you have, and we all do. So praise the Lord that we have a great Savior to deliver us from our folly. Now we read on in verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, the prophet, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it for you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else... Three days of the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, and he was destroying The Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep... What have they done? Let, let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. What an incredible prayer from David. Man, what a scene here. It's like the superhero movies I talked about on Tuesday night where, you know, you have these aliens, you know, in the last 20 years, all kids all grew up with those, like, you know, Avengers and all that stuff where the aliens come through a portal and they're like, and they're huge aliens and they're super powerful. Listen, that's, that's the fantasy of men's minds. This is a real angel of the Lord. This chapter is very spiritual. We've got Satan, the tempter, and now we've got the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord with a sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And by the way, when Jesus comes back, yeah, he's described as coming as king of kings and lord of lords and with a sword, and he's coming to Jerusalem. That's something to think about right there. Ah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city, the center of the universe is Jerusalem. David, who is so close with the Lord, who had survived so many things, is in sackcloth and ashes, and they're looking at this angel. Now, we don't, they're seeing it over the entire, I've been to Jerusalem. 
I've been to Jerusalem. And I've walked from the Mount of Olives through the Garden of Gethsemane over to uh, around the city, inside where the east gates closed, where the, you know, the church closed that about four centuries ago to keep the Messiah from coming from the east. And I've been all there, the Western Wall, the Dome of the Rock. I took a bus to East Jerusalem where Golgotha is, the place of the skull, where, where Jesus is. Our tour went there. You can walk to all these places. They're all walkable. I mean, you can walk eight miles in Jerusalem and you see all of this stuff in one day, for sure. The temple and all that stuff. It's a valley, the Kidron Valley. And I just picture this angel, like, wow, like angel with the sword over it. Like, and it's really happening. Like, eternity's opened up and that dimension's open. And David, the great king who's conquered everybody, He's on his face. He's terrified, sackcloth and ashes, and all the elders with him. 70,000 men in three days. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com. Where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.